You're listening to the preaching ministry of Redemption Bible Church in New Braunfels, Texas, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you seek to worship Christ, walk with Christ, and work for Christ, all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, please visit redemption.bible. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you soon at one of our upcoming worship services. But turn in your copy of God's Word to John 17. John 17, verse 20 is where we'll pick up where we left off last week. John is uh, that uh, fourth book in the New Testament. John's gospel here, not the epistles, John, but John chapter 17. And this morning we come to the closing part of uh, Jesus' prayer to close out the meal and this, um, the, the final message here in uh, the upper room discourse. And this has been a memorable series, right? We've taken it over many months here, these chapters, John 13 through 17. And now it's like the meal has finally come to the close. This is probably the longest meal you've ever participated and if you've been here all fall. Um, but, but, it, but, it, but it's been a memorable night for the disciples and hopefully a memorable time in God's word for you as we've explored it together. But just to, like an overarching uh, summary here, I think will be helpful for us as Jesus has really condensed the entirety of his teaching into this final message and final prayer. He's hit all the, the, the important points, and he's really loved his disciples well, discipling them with what they could expect uh, in a living a life in, a, in an ungodly world, living a godly life in an ungodly world without Jesus beside them as he has been for several years, but now with the Holy Spirit inside of them. And as he's been teaching and as he's been eating, and this night has evoked really the range of emotions that we've seen along the way. Where Jesus begins by washing feet, and this unsettles them. And Jesus then calls out his betrayal, and that has them all introspective about their own uh, guilt in this. And then Jesus, in no uncertain terms, announces his departure, and they're anxious about being leaderless. And then Jesus again calls out Peter's denial before the night's out. And now everything's awkward as they're sitting around the meal, and Peter's been called to the carpet, and And to calm their fears, Jesus invites them to abide, to abide in Him, to abide in His Word and His love, but then warns them that even as you do that, everybody else is going to hate you for it. This causes turmoil in their hearts, and so He teaches on the ministry of the Holy Spirit who will help and encourage and comfort and guide and produce joy and love and peace in their hearts. And again, All this is over one meal. It's an eventful meal, right? You maybe have had some eventful meals in your life that has had some emotions from maybe uh, silence to screaming and somewhere ever in between or whatever it might be. But if they aren't full of the physical food from the meal, they are sure full of this soul food. And so as the meal is coming to a close and they're about to depart, and what is going to happen in the subsequent chapters has the potential really to rip apart everything that Jesus came to die for. And so what does the Son of God do as the meal comes to a close and they're about to leave? He prays. He's prayed. We've taken it in three parts here a few weeks ago. He first prays that he would be glorified both that he'd be made more magnificent in uh, our eyes and in the disciples' eyes, but also that he would be glorified in returning to the throne, which he occupied before he came to earth. And then last week, we 
learned that he's praying for his disciples to be kept and secured and set apart in the truth. And finally, so see here just in a moment as we read it together, he prays for unity. That his disciples, that all who would believe in him would be made one, even as they are one. So hopefully you found it. Let me just read our text this morning, and then we'll explore it more closely in a minute here. But it's John 17. Pick it up in verse 20 and read to the end of the chapter. Jesus is the one speaking. He's the one praying. He's lifted his eyes up to heaven and is speaking to the Father. And his prayer lands this way. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Now, this is God's word for God's people this morning, and another one of those, like we've seen along the way, this like intertwined uh, prayer and theology lesson in the midst of Jesus praying. And it's very fascinating here because unity is so important to Jesus that it is the theme of his final recorded prayer with the disciples. It's how he lands of all the things that he could be praying for as uh, as things are about to drastically change, just moments after he says, Amen. We assume probably John just forgot to write it in here. Surely he said, In my name, Amen. But of all the things that he prays for, he prays for unity. A unity that is constantly under threat, and so it needs this divine uh, intercession of the Son to the Father. And so I think we can just draw uh, out this singular and central takeaway this morning. As we come to Jesus' prayer, write this down. It's here on the screen, there in your notes. We must pray for and pursue unity with fellow believers at all costs. One simple takeaway, one simple application here that we uh, uh, extract from Jesus' prayer is we too must pray for and pursue unity with fellow believers at all costs. Unity gets talked about often, both in the church and in the world and amongst you know, governing officials. It may be championed even, but Jesus prays for a unity that is genuine and strong. And answer some questions uh, for us that really uh, our unity really hinges upon. For what is it that we unite around? And how is it that we can genuinely uh, unite even when we disagree or are hurt or have conflict? 
And, and, and finally, like, with whom must we be united? Well, as we just follow the course of the prayer here, I think we will learn three things about the nature of biblical unity and how we go about praying for it and how this is kept and whom, with whom are we united. And write this down here. Unity is centered around the Father's sending of Jesus. We first learn the nature of biblical unity. It, it, it's just simply this. It's centered around the Father's sending of Jesus. Now think of our unity in, the, in this way. There's, it, the unity is, is sometimes like a magnetic pull. There, there's something that is pulling people towards uh, the center. There's a force that is drawing us together, a common cause or a person or a team or something that is drawing people together. At noon today, in just a few short hours, uh, the, like tens of thousands of people will be drawn into stadiums because of their common love for a football team, right? Millions more will be drawn to, the, to, to their screen to, to watch it. All because of the central love for this team or, 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 or this, this, this player, maybe. And so, too, in the church, there is a magnetic pull that draws us in. There is someone that we are all collectively drawn here to faith in in this church. Who is it? That's right. That was like the easiest answer, right? Sunday school answer, softball right down the middle. Good job, y'all. Good job. It's Jesus, but not just Jesus in some, like, ambiguous sense. Oh, yeah, you know, that Jesus guy. But the text teaches us something that's much more robust. First of all, with whom do we unite? With who, who is in view here of Jesus praying? And who is in view of this unity in which Jesus is praying? Well, look at verse 20 here. He says, uh, I do not ask for these only. Who are the these that Jesus is referring to? disciples, right? The 11 disciples that are around the table who were really the focus of the, of the, the middle portion. What we looked at last week, he uh, begins by praying for himself that he'd be glorified and then there for the disciples and with implication, application for us. And now he's like expanding it out. I'm not just praying for these guys, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Who's he referring to there? Really? Us, the church, all who would believe in Christ uh, through the vehicle of the apostles' teaching. The disciples who will go from here and then write many of the books that, uh, we, uh, that, uh, that we know as our New Testament. John, the disciple, there at the table, writing these words and writing other books of our New Testament here. They would come to believe in him through their teaching. That's why when you get to Acts 2, just like a few months after uh, these events that we're talking uh, about here, it's very profound as the disciples are again gathered in an upper room and many are coming. The Holy Spirit descends on them. And at the day of Pentecost, thousands come to faith in Christ through Peter, one of the disciples' teaching. Teaching, and then they scatter into these uh, into, into other churches and they go uh, across and it says in uh, Acts 2.42 that they're devoted to, committed to four things. What's the first on the list? The apostles' teaching and of the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. But as the word of God is uh, disseminated and taken across the globe through their teaching, people have come to believe in Christ and we are here because of that continuing uh, on throughout the generations and across the globes. And now see, this is a magnetic pull, not to the disciples themselves as people, but to their teaching about Jesus now recorded in his word. 
And so that's who he's praying for. He's, he's praying here, and then, but, the, but the why is these also, verse 21, that they may all be one. Here's the first time, well, in this section, I guess, it's also in verse 11 that we saw last week. But now this concept here of them being one as Jesus and the Father are one is repeated multiple times, followed by several implications. Okay, so there's kind of a general structure in each of these three sections. Jesus makes a statement towards their unity, and then there's like several that's, and then a, like a final so that they uh, something may be happened. So there's lots of truth here with multiple implications derived from that truth or that theology. And so let's just track for a moment here. Let's be good Bible students. Let's just track with what Jesus is saying here. So he's asking or beyond. He wants them all to be one because why? The Father and the Son are one or united. See, just follow verse 21. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. So because the Father and Son, and you know from the rest of Jesus' teaching, both here at the upper room and also beyond, the Holy Spirit included in this, this unity that exists in the Trinity. Okay? Because they are unique persons, diverse in their roles and responsibility, but equal and united together, that we too may be one, or look at how it says, that they may also be in us. I'll stop there for just a moment. Like, that's kind of a wild statement, isn't it? Like, believers being united to the Father and Son, being in them. What does that mean? Are we like now all of a sudden like gods? Part of them? Well, no, it's this beautiful theology of our union with Christ to be in Him, right? To where we are united to Christ without ourselves becoming gods, glorified, justified, without being deified. Maintaining our individuality without, uh, 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 while still being drawn into this new uh, united relationship. And so Jesus is saying, I'm praying that they're one because they are in us. They are united to us. This vertical uh, uh, unity that we have now with God. And our union with Christ here is, uh, you maybe have even heard me talk about it this way, but it's a lot like marriage, Right? And what happens when a man and a woman become one flesh on the wedding day, right? On your wedding day, it is both a funeral and a birthday. Explain that. What happens? Okay, what, what happened? Like on a wedding day in April of 2008, Blair Cushman died. Aaron Rodgers died and Blair and Cushman was born. We became one my life's right down here, by the way. And so we died, but a new one flesh a, a, a union was born. And ever since that day, we've been in each other and becoming more and more like each other, taking on each other's habits, the good ones, hopefully, the more refining ones, me becoming more like her, but now moving and deciding and living as one as we too become more and more like Jesus. Our union here is that becoming like each other and in a spiritual sense. So too, since June 1996, Blair Cushman, enemy of God, died. And Blair Cushman, friend of God, saved by Christ, sealed by the Holy Spirit, was born. I've been in 
Christ, becoming more and more like him, taking on his habits, moving and deciding and walking in line with his will to the best of, uh, you know, as not really all by God's grace. The Apostle Paul will describe this, uh, uh, this uh, to the Galatians in Galatians 2.20. Here it is on the screen, this dynamic. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me in the life I now live in the flesh or in this body here. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the dynamic. But even as I I, I personalize it, this isn't solely my story. This is your story as well. Even whether you know the the exact moment or the general time frame or when there's a moment where you uh, died with Christ and were made alive in him. This is the beauty of the gospel. It's what you are invited into. Maybe you walk in this morning skeptical about these things, an enemy of God. And what you are being invited into is to die to yourself and now to live in Christ. As you repent of your sin and say, I don't want to live that way anymore. I'm dying to myself. I'm taking up this cross and I'm walking with Jesus daily. It is the message of the gospel that both unites us to the Lord where we are brought in him. But it is also, get this, this is the point that Jesus is trying to make. It is also the thing that we unite around. That the Father sent Jesus to go get us to unite us to himself. Do you see that there? That there may be in you that they, uh, and I in you, that they may also be in us, right? And now get this, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So what is he saying here? That as we live this unity out, as we come to grips with the saving realities of our unity with Christ and our unity with others, that the world looks at this, the unity that we share as we worship, the affection that we share for the people in our small groups as we disciple one another and live with one another and the care that we give to one another becomes our loudest witness to a dying, broken, hate-filled world. But they look at this and they say, like, this can only be possible. God must exist. I want that. He must have sent their Savior. These things, these gospel truths have to be true. I see it because I see the unity that exists there. And that is unlike anything else in the world. Unlike any common allegiance for a sports team. Under any allegiance to our job or our career field. Is this unity that brings people from various backgrounds. Various walks of life, various stages in our life that is centered around the gospel. The good news that God sent Jesus to earth to rescue us. Our evangelism depends upon it. The hope of the world is sent forth on it. And see, here's the danger. If our our unity is centered around anything else, a charismatic or compelling leader, a historic theologian that we like or dislike, a social concern of varying degrees of importance or music preference or anything else. If our unity is centered around that, it loses both its strength and its saltiness. It's strength in the Lord and it's saltiness in our witness to the people around us. And so our unity as we pray for and pursue it with fellow believers at all costs, it must be centered 
around the good news that God the Father sent Jesus to rescue us. It must be centered around the gospel. But continue with me, because Jesus, he, he elaborates more fully on the nature of this unity, what it is that we're praying for and pursuing. Here, write this down. Number two is that unity is secured by the Father's love for Jesus. It, it is secured by the Father's love for Jesus. Not only is there this magnetic pull that draws us in that our, our lives center around or orbit around, but there is also a protective force of sorts that keeps us from being pulled apart. And so in verse 22, look, look here, Jesus makes a, another statement about something he has done with several implications. What, is he, what has he done in verse 22? Well, look at it. He has given glory to us uh, out of what has been given to him. Speaking the Father, look at this verse 20, the glory that you have given me so that the Father's given me is given to them, to God's people, to those that would believe in the word through the word. And so what does this mean? Like glory, as we've, as we've countered along the way, it's defined in many ways. It's used, this concept is used in many different ways. We glorify God as we worship Him and uh, give Him all praise and glory in our life. And, but in a sense, it's referring to the glory that's been given as God's perfections. And who He is, and because He's perfect, that like glory and holiness emanate from Him, but it's His perfections in both His attributes and his, his, his actions. And I get that this can be confusing in here, and so what is He referring to? Well, these, these, the, the perfections that God has, that, uh, and that Christ also has, have been given, in a sense, to us. What does that mean? Well, we're not perfect in any of these things, but it is a part of the Spirit's sanctifying work in us as we grow in the attributes and actions of God so that we can be united. So he's bring, like, he gives us to them that they may be one, I and you and you and me, that they may be perfectly one. Because we're growing in this in, in, in our life. As the Spirit is doing the sanctifying work in the truth, we're growing and becoming more like Christ. And the reality is it's in the gaps in that and our imperfections in these attributes is often where conflict happens, where, where disunity happens, where, where when we act unlovingly towards others, there's a breach then in the unity, right? When our sin and areas that we're going, this is what happened. Conflict happens right? when we refuse to see another person's perspective, when we think my way is the only way, I am right in all of this, and we lack grace, and we think we're omniscient. We're not. Conflict happens when we retreat into isolation. When we refuse to, uh, to, to be in community, and we remove ourselves from the relationship, and we, 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 we believe the worst, and let bitterness set in. In these moments here where we're lacking this love or conflicts happens when we like fixate on the earthly issue. How we've been offended or what has been taken or what we have lost. And we take our minds off of Christ and his sanctifying purposes and what he may be doing according to his sovereign will. And we think, no, we are sovereign. But it's in these moments, in our imperfections, as we are growing in the glory that has been given to us. The conflicts happens, and so we must continue to grow in them. 
Now as we grow, as we grow, like look at it, as you know, it exists perfectly amongst the Trinity. We too, then as we are growing in them, we are growing in our unity. That's a part of God's whole purpose in bringing it up to show us, oh, where we are imperfect, where we are still have room to grow or where, where we get to bear with and forgive somebody else for where they too are growing. The reality is as we do it, this too becomes part of our witness. You see it here? What does he pray? So that, look at here, so that the world may know that you sent me. Very similar to what he said in verse 21, right? As we center around the gospel, the world may believe now that the world may know or become convinced of and live out the fact that Jesus sent them. But also he adds on this other thing. And what? We're into verse 23. Do you see it here? And loved them even as you loved me. So as we love others, as we grow in these ways, this too becomes a part of our unafraid witness. As the world says, oh, wow, that's a big conflict. But you know what? They've been able to reconcile and forgive, and they're growing in grace and allowing for each other's differences. I I want some of that. I want a marriage like that. I want a relationship like that. I want to be a part of a community who sees, like, the, the world knows. Okay, wow. It becomes convinced, like, this is real. These aren't just words on a page. But this is real life, unity, real life, love. That becomes a becomes a, a witness to a watching world. See, it's with the same unconditional love that exists among the Trinity is the love that God has for us. It's no wonder then, as Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8, that nothing can separate us from the love of, uh, of God in Christ Jesus. See, God can't reject us any more than he can reject himself. And see, what gets strained then, as we're talking about, is this horizontal love uh, between humans. So think of it like this at the top, think of it like a big Christmas tree or something with all those uh, strands of lights, you know, that you see out there. And at the top, you have the Trinity, God, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there's a perfect unity that exists there. And then here we are down here. And there's just like that we are united in Christ by love. But it's the things that it's the things that hold us all together that get strained sometimes and our imperfections. But it's why we have to continue to pray for and to pursue unity at all costs because so much is at stake. It's what is most visible to a watching world. See, when we act and speak unlovingly about other believers and and the church in, in general, it's ruinous to our witness. And so what do we do? What do we what do? We, do? we ask God to pray. We pray, God, increase our love for this person, our love for these people who is loved by God. For who are we to hate whom God himself loves? John will flesh this out later in, in 1 John uh, uh, chapter 4. It's here on the screen. John, it's like John takes this. He's writing all these things. And he writes some later letters to other believers. And he, he extrapolates this out in 1 John 4, 19 and 20. We love why? Because he first loved us, Right? He was the initiating cause in all of this. He first loves us. And over to the overflow of that, we love others. But we can't say, I love God and hate our brother, right? See that there? If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. 
John was obviously writing before the American Wild West days because to call somebody a liar is a shooting affair, right? And so, but for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Thus it is our love for God, and more importantly, his love for himself and for us that secures and binds us together, that binds together our unity. Or as Paul also tells the Colossians in Colossians 3.14, and above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. It's the glue that keeps us together. But it is also a unity that not only is something that we experience here on earth, it not only has like just a, a, you know, evangelistic implications. It not only has just our own fellowship implications. It is a unity that carries on for eternity. It has eternal implications. See, look here in the third point. Jesus is praying and teaching about the nature of unity. When he teaches that the unity culminates around the Father's throne with Jesus. It's not just for something here, but it has a culminating crescendo in heaven. And so come to, to verse 24, because I love this. Jesus is praying, and now he gets down to the level of desire, his heart. So far, he's just been praying for the things that he has done. I've done these things, I've done these things, I've given these things. But now, he says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, I love the, the phrase there. Like he's, it's just been on repeat in Jesus' prayer. Like If you have missed the fact that uh, the Father has given a, a, a people, he's given us to the Son, it's, it's just like on, on repeat here. It's like hinges all in here. But whom you've given me may be with me where I am. And so, okay, so he's like, they're all right there. They're still around the table. He's not like, I wish they're all here at, at you know, Christmas dinner with me. No, no. He's speaking of something future. To see my glory that you have given me before you loved me before the foundation of the world. And so he's referring back to like where he's going to be in heaven. Like in chapter, verse 5 here. The glory that he had before here. He desires that the disciples, us all who will believe, will be with him in heaven around the throne so that why? So that we can see his glory, his glorious perfections and all their indescribable glory. Now, John will, uh, incidentally enough, like later in his life, as he's on the island of Patmos, he will get a vision of what this looks like. It's what the book of Revelation is all about. As he tries to describe this, as God gives him this, as like cracks the window open, and his mind is blown about all that he is uh, seeing in heaven and, and into the future, and in, in the best first century language to describe it all. Like Revelation is like a graphic novel of sorts, as he's trying to describe these things that are really incomprehensible to him about what is to come. And so, and so he, he, he does, he like, uh, all of the perfections, the glory that Jesus had beforehand and is now returning to after his 30-some years on earth. And it's a glory, look at this, that was given to him before the foundation of the world because of the Father's love for him. Do you see that there? He, he's returning. He wants us. He wants us to be there, to see it, to experience the love that the Father had for love, a love that is eternally existing before all this, and it will continue to eternally exist uh, far beyond this. It's a glory given to him out of love and the same love that also was set on us. It's the same language. Paul prays very similar to this in Ephesians chapter 1, 
for we who are believers. You familiar with this? I want you, I want you to see this, actually. Let's turn over there. Ephesians 1, go right. You have John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. I think you're going to see the similarities from what is being prayed for here that Jesus is praying for and what just like causes Paul to explode in prayer in, in his opening letter to the Ephesian believers here. And so Ephesians chapter 1, let's pick it up in verse 3. Paul says this, blessed, or blessed, what's the proper pronunciation? I don't know, what are the grammar rules here? Blessed. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, or of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, now there's something profound here. This isn't like, you know, southern thing. I'm like, oh, bless his heart, you know, like, no, no, no. It's, it's much more punchy. Like, this is so robust. He, this Paul is like, over like, blessed. All praise be to God. Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly place. We bless him because he's blessed us with these spiritual blessings there in the heavenly places. Like, look at this. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Like, the same thing. And you know, this, this theological concept of God's choosing his foreknowledge or his setting his love on us. In the same way that the Father loved the Son before the foundation of the world. Not something that he earned. Like, don't, don't mistake this. It's not like uh, Jesus was sent to earth to go and do a whole bunch of good things, to win all these people back, and now he's like, and now, Father, will you love me for this? Like, it already exists. Or it was already said. It already was eternally existing. And in, in, in the same way, like, we don't come and live through our life and try to do all the godly things and all the righteous things so that we get to the end of the life. And like, okay, God, did I do enough things to earn your love? No. In the same way, set on us, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, before we could do anything good or bad or otherwise. That we should, look at this here, that we should be holy and blameless before him, right? Set apart, living upright, lives before him, in love, like this, in love. In the same, like you're seeing the connections back to John 17, in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. His predestination. So choosing there, he set his love on us. Uh, predestination, he set us on a new trajectory, right? A, a new trajectory whose end is, is, is glory, whose end is heaven to be with him. Why? And, and, and he adopted us. He set on us all the inheritance of all the, uh, of all the family blessings. All his uh, unconditional love, all of all the blessing, all of the grace that comes from being known and loved by God. Set on us, opened to us without limit. Why? according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. ESV helpfully capitalizes that because it's referring to Christ. The one who Jesus, you know, he's praying for. He, he himself is the beloved. Father, you set this love on me before the foundation of the world and brought these into it. Just jump down to verse 10 for a second so you see the unifying factor of this, a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him, things in heaven and things on earth. Why, why, why? All according to his purpose. All for his praise. Do you know why he, does, like, he doesn't elaborate fully? Like, why does God love us? He loves us because he loves us. He doesn't tell us the why, 
in the, you know, in like a very specific sense so that nobody gets the credit but him. It's like receiving an anonymous gift of an extraordinary amount and you want to say thank you, but you don't know who or why to give the thanks. So all you can do is turn to heaven and bless God for it. That's our salvation. It's the same for all of us, united in him. The same love set in motion long ago before the world was spoken, before anything in Genesis 1 that we read about happens and culminates in a future day. Not terminates, just kind of crescendos in an eternal, uh, an eternal day where we are uh, around the Father's throne giving all praise and glory to Jesus Christ. Where, as uh, John will describe in, John, in Revelation 5, nine believers from every tribe and language and people and nation exalting the worthiness of Christ in the most diverse and unified gathering in all of, all of, all of existence. And the only reason anyone is there is because of the Father's love. And Jesus went and got him. Jesus knows this. He knows this is the future. He knows this is what is coming. So he prays for it, appealing to the righteousness of the Father, the one who is righteous and just to forgive us our sins, the one who is righteous and just to set his love, the one who is righteous that an unrighteous world doesn't know, but Jesus knows and those who follow him knows. righteousness and a message that we continue to make known as Jesus makes known and it is a righteousness and a unity and a culmination that becomes an appeal for us to even remain unified. Paul knows this. Paul, the Apostle Paul, we've seen him pick up on this prayer. He knows the future and he even appeals to it in the Philippian conflict. Remember this? Are you familiar with the book of Philippians? We preached it a number of years ago, but you get into Philippians chapter 4, and, and, and Paul like calls out these two women for their, for their disunity. Can you imagine being in church on that day, right? Like this letter, man, we got this letter from the apostle Paul. He wrote it, and you know, the pastor's up there reading it or whatever, and it gets to the end, and he calls out Yodia and Syntyche, and you're like, oh man, like this just got real, right? Don't worry, I'm not going to do that today. We're not going to call it any, you know, any, anything. But like, look at this here. It's on the screen. I entreat Yodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord, to be united, to come together, to have harmony in Christ. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Why should they agree into the Lord? What does he appeal to? Because the mission depends upon it. They've labored side by side. You worked hard to disseminate this gospel message and their names are written in the book of life. What will happen at the end when we come to the judgment? He's looking at the book of life. Whose names have been written in there? See, whatever unknown disagreement they have, it doesn't matter. He doesn't even bring it up. And it doesn't matter in heaven. Why should it divide them there on earth? And so he appeals to this in the same way that Jesus is saying, when we get there and we see the glory and the love. And I get it. Jesus gets it. Paul gets it. It's hard. It's kind of unity amongst believers and our disagreements and our preferences and all the things. It's easier said than done, isn't it? There's all the whatabouts and all the what ifs and all the yeah buts. And so it takes humility. Uh, propensity to uh, to suspect ourselves first in conflict. 
a willingness to own our sin, to repent of it, to walk in faith and love and, and to pray for this. So Jesus is praying for it. I didn't think it's like divine intercession. It's so important. Jesus prays for it. And it, and it won't happen apart from him. It, it just won't. In the same way like last week, as you saw, our salvation, our sanctification, our being sent out, all that. It will not happen apart from the work of the Father and Son. And neither will unity. In our marriages, in our relationships, in this church, it can't happen apart from him. It's why we need to pray for it. That's why we need to pursue it as much as it depends upon us. Live at peace with all men. We must pursue it at all cost. For it costs Jesus his life to make it possible.